We're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. This week, I sat down with Talha Big, a former meta engineer turned podcast host, co-hosting the Trust in Tech podcast at the Integrity Institute. We talk about his old gig at Meta, the future of generative AI and its impact on trust and safety, and what he's doing now with the Integrity Institute and his podcast. Enjoy. Today we're here with Talha Big, who actually runs his own podcast, the Trust in Tech podcast. So we have a little crossover happening here. Welcome to the show, Talha. Thanks for having me. So just to jump straight into it, I want to hear about your background and sort of what got you into the trust and safety space. So the, the short answer of the story is I cheated. <laughs> the longer answer of the story is I had a computer science background and at the time I had the Facebook internship and got the return offer. And the thing that Facebook does is it gives you around like eight to 10 weeks to decide which team you're going to join. So those eight to, those eight to 10 weeks, you're basically going through training, trying to understand the company's system, how the company's larger infrastructure works. Um, so I knew what I was really interested in was this uh, civic integrity or just in general, trust and safety, integrity rules, moderation. And I was deciding between the civic integrity team and the marketplace integrity team. And I decided to marketplace integrity in the end because it was a smaller team. It was less mature and I got to wear more hats while still making, hopefully having made an impact on the Facebook marketplace ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you were initially pulled towards civic integrity and trust and safety generally. Why was that? There's one class and that one class was, it's, it sounds maybe a little technical, but it's called information retrieval. We analyze the transcripts of keeping up with the Kardashians to see who holds the power dynamic in the conversation. So you could see who is priming who, who is mirroring the other person, and you can make some uh, data analysis implications based off of that. And the TAs of that class were much more looking at sociology. They were looking at race relations through data. They were looking at macroeconomic trends through data. And I realized I was much more interested in the human side of technology. And then when I was an intern, I worked for a startup that was acquired for Facebook, I realized that maybe I wasn't as interested in product as I was interested in what one of my TAs, who was also an intern at Facebook, but just like a PhD intern, was working on civic integrity. And I was just blown away. He's like, yeah, I work on misinformation models. And I was like, that's fascinating. I want to work on misinformation models. When you were at Meta, you were a machine learning engineer using AI to make users experience safer. 
that's a little different from our conversations about AI these days. So what's your take on generative AI and sort of this new development um, within the AI space and how it can help or harm public safety? So there's a couple of ways you can go off of this. And one is how you're defining harm. So I'll go off of how I'm going to define harm. So one is existential harm, and then I'll label high-risk harm, and then I'll label everyday harm. So existential harm, I'll say, is humanity will get wiped off the face of the earth. The next inflection point in AI is going to be when AI models will replicate themselves. That's when it's going to start acting like more like a virus. And once it has that capability, will government infrastructure rely on AI such that there will be like nuclear harm? Now, in terms of high risks, I would say something that's something more on like the government side. So it would be like facial recognition for AI or police using facial recognition. And then for everyday risks, I would say something like social media. You're getting engaged to your phone. Uh, The Surgeon General either called or is going to or said he wants to he or she wants to call loneliness an epidemic in the U.S. And why do you think that is? right? AI is already being used in everyday risks, high risks, and I can see the existential risks coming too. So I'm very scared for public safety. One of the things that I think is really interesting across all those different risk categories is the notion that AI has this power, and we've seen this with you know, the deployment of chat GPT and lots of other large language models is that the notion of truth gets skewed quickly, right? So the spread of misinformation on, um, you know, by using these large language models uh, and the notion that that will get more integrated into our lives. What do you think of that sort of angle? Yeah, misinformation. So there's a couple of things about misinformation. So one thing I should mention is I know the RNC used a deep fake Biden video for one of their ads at this point. So we can already see it being used for political operations within the US. I also know that I'm not sure if the U.S. discontinued this, but at some point the U.S. was like, we're going to start using misinformation campaigns for it as well. Uh, Russia definitely has used misinformation campaigns. Turkey has also used misinformation campaigns. And now it only becomes easier to do misinformation campaigns because deepfakes are realistic. And you can say, look at the hands, but look at the hands will not last forever either as a heuristic to determine whether something is a deepfake or not. So it's it's easier to scale um, misinformation. I will say it will also be easier to scale counter misinformation um, operations because both sides have the generative AI tools. So we're, what we're getting is both the sides for truth and the sides for the adversarial side are going to both exponentially escalate as technology exponentially escalates. And what you kind of get is a virus versus an antibody. 
and which where both sides are trying to exponentially replicate and they're going to see who wins on that end. So that's the misinformation side of it. In terms of the truth of it, there's also the whole chat GPT part of it hallucinating. And it does that quite often. And the reason it does that is next sentence prediction. Sorry, next token prediction, not even next sentence prediction. The next token is predicted based on what has already been said by ChatGPT and what it thinks we'll say in the future. And let's pretend that the next token is, I don't know, like let's say the next token is the Eiffel Tower is in Paris, right? It will probably, based on all the corpus of data, guess that it was in Paris. But let's say that someone was writing misinformation narratives that the Eiffel Tower is in Rome, right? That might leak into the da- that might leak into the ChatGPT response, right? It might quote unquote hallucinate and be very confident about it. Every time you predict a token, you have a you have a small percent chance of leaving the truth area. Because if you think about it, it's much easier to be wrong than it is to be right. It's much easier to have a messy room than it is to have a clean room. That to me brings up a couple of salient issues. If someone has to decide what truth is as, you know, the solution to to large language malls proclivity for untruthiness, yeah, um, yeah. I think that's a Colbert word. <laughs> then is there an issue of bias in who is choosing oh, what truth? There's always gonna be bias. No, that's that's a given. Um a function that you can measure the development of a nation is the amount of organizational complexity within that nation. So the U.S. can handle massive organizations at this point, right? As your organizations scale up, the amount of writing that is used within those organizations also scales up. So all of that being said is if the amount of writing in the organization scales up, and the amount of organization scales up, that means the amount of public content from a specific population will be a lot larger because the organizational complexity is higher. All of that being said, that is my take on the bias of large language models is it's going to represent the people that are on the internet more. Also, interestingly, Common Crawl, which is the corpus used for, I think, GPT, removes anything that it doesn't see as traditional English language. So that can be problematic in of itself too, since that will also eliminate a subset of the population. And also I like the fact that you said untruthiness. That means I'm making you sound more and more like an engineer. (laughs) We're learning, we're learning. Even from the engineering perspective, it's sort of up to coders to think about all the potential ways that um, bias can show up in their system, but also it's somewhat determined by, you know, the data that you have available. It's like, or, or what comes to mind for you from an engineering perspective as a challenge in actually seeing um, the, the potential issues of bias 
coming up? Like who makes the decision that uh, chat GPT should only recognize um, traditional English, whatever that means, right? What I'll say to that is the way that Silicon Valley runs tends to be the lean hypothesis, right? Like you want to get a working copy up first. You want to test it with your initial set of users. And after you test it with your initial set of users, then you want to expand and add features and go from there. So in terms of who makes a decision there, is it's, it's, it's not a hard decision in the sense that it's probably the person that was building the large language model was just like this, when I put it on this set of data, it's the language model sounds like a chatbot. When I put, when I don't filter anything, it doesn't sound like a chatbot that I would have for my corporate customers or for anyone in general. So in terms of who makes this decision, it's a person engineering. And when you're engineering, it's like, it's it's like a thousand decisions a day, right? And that could have been one of the decisions. You also have to decide, for example, when you're building one of these models, you have to decide these are the parameters. These are the hyperparameters. This is the data that's going to go in. This is the algorithm we're going to use. This is the architecture we're going to use. And then on top of that, you have all the underlying computer stuff too. You're like, okay, I have to make sure that it's running on this cluster and making sure that the, oh, the job will fail if I don't add this thing, or um, I need to make sure there's a copy here, or I need to make sure that I run this on an AWS cluster that is resilient and privacy secure and everything. So this is like a, there's, you're making a thousand trade-offs a day and what ends up, and your bias is towards execution and your bias is towards success. So a success in an initial form. So if that means filtering out, filtering out a subset of the data that you think is quote unquote, I don't agree with this view, but ruining your chatbot, then that's what they're going to do. And it's not going to be thought twice about. So when it comes to like the other people on the team that are not engineers, maybe the legal people or the policy people, like they can definitely lay out what outcomes they want and they can definitely lay out like some rules and procedures and regulations you have to follow. So for example, if it's like, Oh, you're not allowed you have a regulation, you're not allowed to filter that data. out. Okay, fine. Like and no one's going to filter that data out. But if that option is available to the engineer, whose top line metric is to make the chatbot quote unquote sound like human. And they think the engineer does not think that a certain vernacular is, I don't know, corporate enough for them, for lack of a better term, then they will filter it out. That's so interesting. That sort of bias towards success, um, I think is, I think you're right, is very characteristic. Bias towards speed. Yeah. Right. And speed, efficiency, making it work. And I will say it's a bias that exists because your competition is so fast too. So Mm -hmm. it's an arms race on who gets there first. And that's why that bias exists in the capitalistic system we are. Right. So I think for a lot of attorneys and policy folks, you know, our role is kind of to be sometimes the red tape that says, wait, 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 slow down. Here's the implications if you execute X, Y, Z, both from like an 
you know, actual legal obligation perspective, but uh, policy risks and implications as well. What do you think is missing or on the flip side, working well about that interaction between policymakers and and engineers? I'll first off say that integrity engineers are very different than maybe not the average engineer, but then a certain set of engineers. So policy has the role of like looking at what the problems are and how to how to build a policy such that all stakeholders in the policy are satisfied. They generally speaking on an integrity team will work with engineers and be like, hey, I know that this policy is hard to implement, but we have to do it for X, Y, and Z reason. And engineers are like, okay, sure, let's get on it, right? In terms of red tape, integrity teams are also red tape. So there is this like camaraderie between policy and integrity sometimes, which is there's a new product launch and integrity is like, this is a massive, um, this can be a massive attack vector and integrity will agree and policy will agree. And the product team will be sad, right? Because they worked so hard to build this product. One of the people or members in the Integrity Institute, he might be a fellow, uh, Tom Cunningham, he made a, a really good like six axiom tweet on uh, and paper too with a tweet version it's like nice and succinct which is like six principles of uh what engagement like sells for um social media and this is a maybe doesn't answer the question but it's still fascinating to me which is um basically social media is incentivized for retention and in experiments it's been shown that engagement leads to longer term retention and then if you look at what leads to engagement it's more and more misleading content will lead to or anything that's like close to the boundary of like policy violating will lead to more engagement. Now, whether that's because the human mind is like more inclined to see threats in the environment. So if you see more and more slightly off stuff or like slightly like sensationalized stuff, you're more likely to click on it. So in a certain way, definitely these companies are hacking our minds to increase engagement and therefore increase longer term retention. I would highly recommend that tweet. We we'll definitely put notes. that in the show notes. That sounds fascinating. We'll be right back. The Internet Law and Policy Foundry is hosting our annual trivia night on June 12th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. Location to be announced, but make sure to follow the Foundry on LinkedIn and Twitter We'll always link it in the show notes for the latest updates about how you can sign up for the hottest tech policy social of the summer. Anything that sort of incorporates that evolutionary biology perspective on human behavior, I think is so fascinating. And I've never thought about clickbait before as, you know, threat recognition. Well, I mean, it's, it's rubber, it's rubber necking, right? It's like, even when there's an accident on the mm-hmm. freeway, there's like a phantom stop there for hours afterwards. Right. And a good portion of that is people are, are just like looking out to the side, you know, they're trying to see what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that is really an interesting analysis on sort of what incentivizes um, 
engagement and how there's a real tension there sometimes between uh, protecting the integrity of uh, democracy, of human society and whatnot, um, and, you know, our own you know, evolutionary drive uh, to counteract that sometimes uh, that, that's somewhat subconscious. That's so interesting. Um, I want to get into the Integrity Institute a little bit and talk about your show, Trust in Tech. Um, so with the Integrity Institute, what is it and how did you get involved? Yeah, so being in Marketplace Integrity, um, what you kind of see is besides like the Integrity team, you're kind of like siloed from the rest of like you're always like the Debbie Downer, right? You're always, oh, hey, let's not launch that. Or, hey, um, we have to do this as well if we want to launch that product. And it can kind of get alienating at times, especially when you're not ever a priority for VPs, um, especially when you roll up to a product. I was on the Marketplace Org, so they would care less and less about this, right? Because they want Marketplace in general to succeed. And we'd always be like, let's take some content down. So there's always like that natural thing. And I was scrolling LinkedIn one day. Don't hate me. But yeah, I was scrolling LinkedIn one day. and I could never hate on LinkedIn. <laughs> there was this TikTok, which was like making fun of LinkedIn influencers, which they totally should. <laughs> um, and one of the comments was like, if anyone's scrolling LinkedIn, they just need to go outside and touch grass. And I... I have to go outside yeah. and touch grass. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah. So I saw the Integrity Institute and I saw that it was basically like a community-driven think tank. I, the values were aligned with my values. There's an integrity oath. And it's just a community of like-minded people that are that care about the social internet and care about preserving liberal, uh, preserving democracy and helping democracy societies and individuals thrive. So I joined and in November, so I joined in like June, it was summer, who pays attention to anything in the summer and November comes around and in one of our happy hours, one of the co-founders says to me, uh, he was like, yeah, one of our, one of our members, Alice is thinking about starting a podcast. And I was like, Oh, is she? And that's when it started, right? That's uh, and then we got connected over Slack, and the rest is uh, not particularly history. It's only been six months, right? But recent it's been history. Recent history, yeah. The rest is recent history, and our goal is to just shine a light on the people that work inside platforms. So, uh, keeping things running. So we just had uh, OpenAI on our show, and in that episode, I learned that they have three arms to the trust and safety team. I can't remember the top off the top of my head, but one is like traditional content moderation. Another is AI alignment, and alignment meaning you want AI to be incentivized to be aligned, AI's interest to be incentivized for human interest. And there's a third department I can't remember. So um, there's that, and then we also just had Brandon Silverman, who was the CEO of CrowdTangle, um, which people may have heard of, but essentially what it provides insights into what's going on in like the Facebook platform at the time. And he goes through his journey of 
navigating a startup acquired by Facebook and his like red pilling on how to do transparency right. And even like some of the legal stuff, which I had no idea about, about some of these like tensions between free speech and transparency, which I still can't explain to you. So maybe I don't understand it yet, but it's definitely uh, a tension. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you were affected by uh, meta layoffs um, back in November, as many people were at that time and, you know, have continued to be uh, across lots of different tech companies in the past few months. And it seems that trust and safety was uh, one particular group um, across those different tech companies that was especially hit hard uh, by layoffs. And so in your work with the Integrity Institute and the conversations that you've had with folks, um, you know, in running your show, what is sort of the sentiment um, among folks working in trust and safety, considering that sort of industry change at a time where, you know, arguably trust and safety has never been more important. Yeah. So the impression is not completely incorrect, right? It's trust and safety has been affected by layoffs. There's no other way around it. And the people in power are not integrity workers. Um, The people in power uh, the bottom line is their basic um, their basic profit motive is their basic uh, way that they work. And it's almost counterproductive to the business um, to lay off trust and safety workers, especially we can see at Twitter now, which is an extremely streamlined company. A lot more misinformation there now, and then a lot more deepfakes. And ticket responses are happening at a lower latency. So don't have a solution of how you can hire more trusted safety people because they're not free labor. And the ones that end up picking up the tab is the companies. Maybe you can regulate the companies to have a trusted safety team that's X amount of size, or you can regulate them to have, uh, to meet certain objectives, but you can't technically force them to hire as of right now, force them to hire trust and safety. Right. Do you think that has to do with the sort of lack of regulatory environment around integrity and trust and safety in particular? Because we've seen very recently a shift um, within the regulatory environment towards more focus on privacy and security measures, which are obviously connected in, in some way. Trust and yeah, safety, but yeah, there yeah. isn't a discrete um, regulatory authority for trust and safety issues in particular. One, privacy and security are easier to, are more a part of the discourse, are easier to comprehend than trust and safety. So that's a bias there. And security has existed for a while too. So security platforms know they need security. There's like an established, if you don't have security, I will get hacked, right? The connection between having a trust and safety team and 
being hacked is much weaker and tech and platforms don't think of it as often as they should. So there's that part of it. And then regulators and uh, regulators and policymakers don't think of it as much either because it's just a black box, right? They don't even know what a trust and safety team is. So that's part of the goal of trusted tech is lift a curtain into what trust and safety is, what integrity is, and um, get other people in the know and really show them the work that we do and highlight the people that are doing it. So to round this out, you're based in New York City. We have a bunch of Foundry Fellows in New York City. I will be moving to New York City uh, in basically a week um, in like, you know, maybe mere days by the time this uh, episode comes out. But what does the tech policy community of New York City look like and how has that uh, informed your engagement with these issues? So I will say I'm not super plugged into it. But all tech is human exists and they're based in New York City. And sometimes I'll go co-work with them. Uh, Integrity Institute, like a good amount of members, a good chunk of them are in New York City. I will also say that New York City's proximity to both D.C. and Boston, like D.C. is like a policy hub and Boston is like a thinky, think tanky hub, definitely help out for sure. Um, and then on top of that, Brooklyn's just a big cultural hub right now. It might be the cultural hub of the U.S. So people are incentivized to move there to begin with. And they, and that's, I guess, how people are meeting each other. Um, in terms of the frequency of responsible tech meetups, it's probably like, well, there's one every like a few weeks, one happy hour every few weeks that I that I'm plugged into. I'm sure there's so many more that I don't know of right now. Um, but yeah, I think tech policy, if you're interested in tech policy, the players are all in New York slash DC. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that these tech policy hubs are propping up, not just in the traditional places you would think of, um, DC and Silicon Valley, uh, but really New York, like you mentioned, Boston, um, I'll do my little pitch for LA. I think LA is um, is on is on the come up. Some of our uh, members are in LA for sure. Yeah. What do you think of the writers? The writer strike right now. That one's fascinating me. Not in like, not in a good way, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I think it's such an interesting example of how AI is disrupting an industry right now. Um, and I was listening to, oh, I have to find it so I can put it in the show notes and do some attribution because it was really good. But it was basically an interview um, discussing, you know, how the writer's strike came about and um, oh, what the sort of industry disruptions leading to it were. And a big element of it is streaming and the notion that streaming has really completely changed you know the movie making industry oh, streaming has changed it okay yeah so i think like a couple things here is i can't really speak to writing i haven't screen written anything ever 
I can speak to engineering though. What I've noticed is engineers that are using GPT are getting so much more productive than people that are not using GPT. It's actually insane. Um, you can just type in a prompt, you can give it like the right information and it'll output code for you. And you'd have to tweak it like a little bit, but there's, you're not generating it out of the wellspring of your mind. So there's that element to it. And it doesn't take away a junior engineer. There is still incentive for people to hire junior energy engineers. It's just that the junior engineer is going to be much, is going to be much faster. So, or it could be the case that they hire less people because people are so much more productive, right? Which I don't think is going to happen, at least for engineering. Okay. Now, in the case of writing, how does it work if someone can't copyright and that's what their living was while they did other stuff? Or Toni Morrison was copywriting to begin with, and that's how she got a lot of her experience. And if that doesn't exist, then... How do people get the skill developments necessary to become senior writers? What happens to that career pipeline? I'm not sure. Or it could be the case that people are just better writers faster too, because maybe they're just better at copywriting by high school because AI has taught them how to copyright by high school. Although the content out of AI right now is pretty garbage, but that's because it's SEO optimized. Right. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that skill development aspect is fascinating. And I think that was also a discussion in that episode of The Daily, which I will link in the show notes. It's really interesting. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I don't really know labor that well. So it's like, I'm not an expert in any of these things, but it is something to chew on in the sense that you'll get, with any of these automations, you get more and more people, you get an ever-shrinking middle class. And a mechanism for that could be the case. A mechanism for that could be because there are one more dead end jobs and two less skill development to become a part of the middle class. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how AI policy in that educational context develops over time, because that to me is sort of the turning point of, you know, will. AI be integrated into, you know, from the, from maybe like K through 12 level um, mm, of, yeah. you know, here's how you learn how to prompt engineer. Uh, here are some more practical skills than yeah, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. what we're traditionally yeah. brought up with for, I guess we can now say traditional 21st century jobs. Traditional first 21st Yeah, I guess, right? Like a part of me is like, It'll make writing essays faster for sure, Mm -hmm. but there won't be like that human, I guess, like spiritual element in it. Like AI is not connected to everything else for lack of a better term. It's just trained on what has been said before. There's no novelty inside what it says. Mm -hmm. But then the thing is most TV is just escapism TV. Or even if you look at reality TV, I'm sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure someone like an AI could have written some reality TV scripts, uh-huh. right? So it's like, yes, it might miss a human element, but is that if the consumer doesn't care, then does 
it matters, but it does that bode well for the future of human creativity? Yeah, I think we have yet to see. And I'm curious as to what the first, um, you know, AI-based script, uh, script to screen will look like. Um, of course, it's also a thing of like, will we even know if ChatGPT has been used for for script? That's a test. Will it be? That's a test yeah. of your refined taste. <laughs> is whether you can tell. Yeah. I mean, it it is fascinating and we will see. Kind of on that note, um, something that we like to ask in these interviews every now and again, uh, it's just, what are you reading or listening to right now? One episode I recommend of the 80,000 hour show. I'm going to get hate for listening to that podcast. No, but it's a good podcast. It's a really good podcast. I would highly recommend is episode 111 by Mushtaq Khan on institutional economics. And his whole thesis of the episode is traditional legislating might not work. So you might, you kind of want to get competition to legislate each other. So instead of like top down legislation that Nike and Adidas have to follow regulations, you want Nike and Adidas to snitch on each other, essentially. And he uses this type of policy building mechanisms for developing nations so he's like for example he's like there's this oil theft pipeline uh, oil pipeline theft so who cares if someone steals off an oil pipeline actually people care but i don't care anyways um that being said he's like you're not going to be able to regulate that because the opportunity is so good so how do you build an exit pipeline off of that um instead of trying to build policies that will not take into account who is powerful in that geographical context. And then he also mentions that a little history of rule by law is a consequence of capitalism as opposed to capitalism working because of rule of law. So they kind of work with each other as opposed to one leading directly to the other. So yeah, extremely fascinating. It is three hours and 20 minutes, but it's worth every second. Guy's brilliant. We'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And then one book I'll recommend is maybe not related to any trust and safety thing, which is coming out the top of my head right now is um, uh, two books. One is Happy City by Charles Mark Montgomery. Just big walkable city person here. Um, there's some, there's like some stat that reducing your commute by like two hours will give you as much happiness as finding the love of your life. And that's in the book. One more is uh, The Price of Peace by Zachary Carter. And it's just a, a biography of John Maynard Keynes, the econo- economist. Yeah, economist. And sounds boring, but it's fascinating too. Okay, very good. So we'll link all those recs in the show notes. Um, I always love getting more recommendations from folks on what to read or listen to um in spare time especially with summer coming up people can start building oh, their the book thank you so much tala this has been a real pleasure yeah for sure thank you for having me thanks for tuning into this episode of the tech policy grind 
If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.